0: This is an age where everyone seems united on one point and one point only. And that's the belief that we're living in a world that's becoming more and more divided. And to kick off a podcast that's about that divided world and how we got here, it seems useful to look back at that moment that seems to exist in every culture's foundational myth That time when we all sang of one accord, however briefly. Among the many stories of our fall from grace in the biblical book of Genesis, one story stands, towers above the others, in the sweeping way it seems to address, albeit obliquely, the history of human civilization itself. In the beginning, according to Genesis, we were all speaking one language. And like a hive mind, humanity seemed to collectively become possessed by the same grandiose vision. To build a tower with its head in the heavens. But the God of the Hebrews had other plans. Sweeping down to confront the builders, he mixes up their languages, presumably creating a series of mishaps and miscommunications, like some obscure early Monty Python sketch. In fact, the story possesses a certain kind of dry humor. The name that the Bible gives, the Tower of Babel, might even be one of humanity's first puns, The Hebrew name Balal, meaning to jumble, confuse, or confound, was also the name the Hebrews gave to the real-life Babylon. And so the Tower of Babel became the place where God confounded their languages. And it turns out the story, with one foot in history and the other in myth, is confounding for a whole myriad of reasons. I'm Joel Elliott, this is Polarities. inspiration for the Tower of Babel goes back to the 6th century BCE. The ancient metropolis of Babylon had recently come to dominate the entire region. Yes, but
1: it was still one of the largest cities in the world. It had roughly a quarter of a million people, which in those days was a lot.
0: I spoke to Gwendolyn Lyke, an ancient historian who also specializes in urban design and architecture.
1: But you would see in the flats of the alluvial valley from afar, you would see something very, very tall and mountain-like, rising above the date palms uh, that were tall trees, which would rise above most of the houses. So you saw this... Presence long before you even approached to the city.
0: That presence was a tower known as
1: Etemenanki,
0: the Temple of the Foundation of Heaven and Earth in ancient Sumerian.
1: It was built in seven stages, I suppose, like so many wedding cakes, one above the other, getting smaller towards the top, and right at the top was the high temple. And we are told that each of these stages uh, had a different color. Probably that color Uh, derived from glazed tiles. After all the main thoroughfare of the city, its most sumptuous street, the processional street, was also glazed in colorful tiles showing the sacred animals of of the major gods. And uh, so this impressive, enormous resplendent and shiny building in the strong south-Iraqi sunlight must have been a, an overwhelming impression to come across.
0: And this resplendent, shiny city, it wasn't all and generis. The Neo-Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar would resurrect the first Babylonian dynasty of over a millennium before, which reached its zenith under the King Hammurabi. While Mesopotamians of the time were all speaking Aramaic, Nebuchadnezzar revived the old Sumerian Akkadian script. The old gods were dusted off and restored to past glory. Particularly Marduk, the god for whom the tower of Atamananki was a place to land, kind of like a helipad.
1: These so-called temple towers, the old Babylonian word for this is ziggurat they were an artificial mountain. And in many cultures of the world, artificial mountains are important, partly because they are conceived as a landing stage for the gods who generally dwell in heaven. And they don't quite come down to earth, but they come sort of close to them.
0: So this landing stage halfway between heaven and earth was a place reserved for only the most elite in Babylonian society.
1: The Holy of Holies was only allowed to uh, very particular people who had the right qualifications to do so. And yet, having said that, um, the statues of the gods would become visible to the populace Uh, during particular rites. And in Babylon itself, this was on the occasion of the very important New Year's festival, where the statues were taken from the normal temple in the city to a special temple outside. And there the king then would clasp the hand of Marduk, the main god, and was thereby entrusted again with the stewardship over the earth, and a new year could begin.
0: Imagine witnessing this sight, a processional parade for this legendary deity, already over a thousand years old, coated in bronze or gold, as sun glints off the colorful tiles on the street, and crowds gather in the tens of thousands under the shadow of this massive ziggurat. But not everyone in the crowd was necessarily impressed.
1: I think it might have been that aspect too that, from the biblical point of view, idolatrous aspect of having idols being paraded around the street, that was also off-putting, to say the least, or, or perhaps even revolting to the Hebrew priests and intellectuals who would have watched that.
0: She's referring to a group of exiles brought to this massive city from a rather far corner of the ancient Near East. By the time Nebuchadnezzar came to power in 605 BC, the Assyrian Empire was defeated and the Neo Babylonian Empire had taken over Mesopotamia. But caught between two warring sides, the Kingdom of Judah sided with Egypt, and as punishment, the city of Jerusalem was sacked. The Temple, attributed to King Solomon, was destroyed. The ruler Zedekiah, rather than being killed, witnessed his sons executed in front of his eyes, and was then blinded, forced to endure the searing image of their deaths as his final vision. He, like many of the most famous Jewish prophets and nobles of the time, were taken to exile in Babylon. This traumatic uprooting of the Hebrew people inspired so many of the stories from the old testament or jewish Torah, including presumably the tower of babel story but the story itself in the bible leaves so much to interpretation as laconic as it is iconic
2: it's a relatively brief story only only nine verses in the hebrew bible
0: that's brent strawn an old testament scholar at emory school of theology
2: so it, it, what it says, it says in a rather compressed, spare fashion, and uh, much is left unsaid, uh, much is unclear about the, the story. But on the face of it, the story is about a group of humans, and they are migrating um, eastward, and they settle down in the land of Shinar, it says. and they Now all the earth
3: was of one language and one set And of it words. was when they migrated to the east that they found a valley in the land of Shinar. They said, each man to his neighbor, come now, let us bake bricks and let us burn them. Now they said, come now, let us build ourselves a a tower, its top, let us make ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of all the earth. But the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans so were The Lord building. said, Here, they are one people with one language for And them this all. is merely the first of their Now doing. there will be no barrier for them in all that they scheme Come to Come now, let us go down and let us baffle their language so that no man will understand the language of his So name. the Lord scattered them from there over the face of all the earth and they had to stop building the Its name was called Babel, or Babel. For there, the Lord baffled the language of all the earth folk. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of all the earth.
0: On the surface, the Tower of Babel story's message is simple. With the religious upbringing that I had, I tend to relive this story through the simplified version of a Sunday School Bible. The people attempt to usurp God and are punished. Pure folly and hubris. In those Bibles, I recall seeing these crude illustrations in which the builders of Babel appear like those left behind in the story of the flood, or plagued by locusts or frogs in Egypt, or any number of pitiful sinners from the Old Testament frozen in a look of twisted remorse when they're shown the might of God. It's blunt, brutal, authoritarian, isn't it?
2: The text means something or seems to mean something straightforwardly, as I kind of recounted it. Uh, But it has come to mean all sorts of things in part because of what the text leaves unsaid. The number one thing the text leaves unsaid is why God doesn't particularly like this tower. So people in the history of interpretation have filled that gap in uh, greatly, and they've mostly filled it in in terms of the people wanted to storm heaven, they wanted to pierce heaven, they wanted to wage war with God, uh, and so on and so forth. It's a widespread trope in the history of interpretation in Genesis 11, going back to the earliest really uh, interpretive text we have, but that's not clear in the text,
0: right? So... What is clear in the text about why God might not like this tower?
2: Maybe, maybe the clearest it gets is that is the line in uh, verse uh, six where God says, uh, "There's now one people, and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do, and now all that they plan to do will be possible for them." So again, it comes back to the one language business or the oneness of the people uh, and their unity. Um, that seems to be a problem that God doesn't like.
0: And God mixes up their languages, and you write that there's a unity that God doesn't will and a diversity that God does will. What kind of diversity do you think is being promoted here?
2: The um, goal of humankind, their, their mission, as it were, in the opening chapters of Genesis, to fill the world, fill the earth, and take care of it. Serve and preserve the ground is what humans are supposed to do in, in, in the opening chapters of, of Genesis. And uh, what you have in, in Genesis 11 seems to be in direct contradiction to that. Not a, a filling of the world, a spreading out, as it were, but a, a resistance to spreading out. There is, a, a, in some way here uh, in this story, some root of the more recent... In modern, even democratic, uh, valorization of diversity, even pluralism.
0: So less authoritarian then, and more noble or heroic or even progressive. And that seems to match up as well with the great stereotype about Babylon, not just a biblical enemy, but also a symbol of everything corrupt. That is
1: part of our biblical legacy, obviously. Um, in, the, in the Bible, Babylon is the great whore as we know, and it is decadent and so on. It's quite interesting the way the Rastafarians use Babylon as a sort of shortcut or as a, as a symbolic reference to oppression, to colonialism, to inequality, to persecution. You know, all these negative things are rolled into that one word, Babylon. And it's only relatively recent that we have more of an idea what really went on and what was admirable in in these uh, civilizations and indeed in in Babylon.
0: What is admirable about Babylonian civilization?
1: Uh, One knows from the names in various economic texts from the period just how many different peoples and languages were spoken in Babylon at the time. On the street and on the market you would hear all sorts of languages from far-flung corners of the world, there would be Egyptians and there would be Greeks and there would be Hebrews and there would be um, people from Anatolia and, and so on. You know, so it was almost like being in the streets of London, you know, you had the world come to the city.
0: So this biblical text that supposedly celebrates diversity, and here you have their number one enemy being the epitome of diversity in the ancient world it kind of takes some of the satirical edge out of the story a little bit. How do you think the Hebrews viewed this kind of pluralistic society?
1: I think they were baffled by diversity. I mean, the the you know, the, the, the fact of not being able to understand each other's language, I think that was a very real experience. And that is a bewildering experience, as I said before, for people who grow up in an area where they... Uh, understand what people are saying. I think the whole urban um, spectacle was strange to them.
0: There's a critique. The growth of urban populations and all the stringent hierarchies that come with them. Poverty brushing up against ornate and extravagant wealth and luxury. Imperial centralized rule that displaces and even erases whole tribes and nations. I spoke to Mark Brettler, professor of Judaic studies at Duke University.
3: I'll say, as a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, I worry about both underreading and overreading a text. I think one thing that's clear is it probably is mocking Babylon. Uh, is it mocking urban life in general? Uh, you know, it's possible. But I am not seeing that in the text directly. If that's really what the text wanted to say, then I think the last verse or verses of the text would have talked about people being spread out and spread out in villages. Uh, I think it is likely, and this is a pretty broad consensus of biblical scholarship, that most of the stories that are contained in the Torah are urban stories coming from an urban elite, at least in their final form.
0: Indeed, Jerusalem, at least the Jerusalem of the legendary King Solomon, was well on its way to becoming its own centralized imperial force. At least until it all came crashing down. So what was it that the Hebrews found so repellent about Babylon and its tower?
1: Uh, the the elite had been deported to Babylon and they must have had some form of communication with local intellectuals. So they had a pretty good idea what was meant here. But of course, it was also considered to be um, something strange and outlandish um, and not something that um, the Hebrew religion would countenance, you know, that man-made structure where these strange rites were carried out. It was, after all, also their enemy god, Marduk, who lived up the Baal, as they called them in the Bible.
0: It may well be that the Hebrew people were subtly commenting on this urban spectacle, but these perspectives more powerfully suggest a less universal meaning. Here the story becomes something more like an obscure document of one belligerent against the other, bitter in defeat, gazing on at the strange rituals in honor of a god that wasn't theirs. A fascinating account of this period can be found in the strange apocalyptic book of Daniel. The eponymous prophet, in exile in Babylon, is consulted by Nebuchadnezzar about a dream he had. And Daniel foretells of the downfall of his kingdom, along with the three succeeding it. And this is a message over and over again in the book of Daniel, the continual impending death of this empire. While Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the power of Daniel's God, he continues to insist on his subjects worshiping his own gods. And when three young Hebrews refuse to bow before a golden idol, he casts them in a fiery furnace And when they survive without a burn, Nebuchadnezzar once again blesses the Hebrew God. But even that is not enough, as a king is sentenced to seven years of madness. Only then, it is presumed, will he acknowledge the ultimate superiority of the God of the Jews. The madness probably never really happened, if any of the story did. But the story illustrates how, in a certain light, the myths of the Bible were born out of desperation. In exile, the Hebrew people had to create stories that would suggest that their god would not simply be adopted in defeat, incorporated into a foreign powers pantheon of other gods, as so many deities were in the ancient world.
1: That a, a powerful empire would incorporate the gods of the defeated, that was very common. And it is also that fact that being incorporated as defeated would rankle rather than a sort of theological incompatibility.
0: But the Tower of Babel story is a myth, and like all myths, it will always rise above its belligerent origins to take on meanings that may have never even been intended.
3: I think that the Hebrew Bible, and certainly even the Torah is a compilation, and it really does not have a single philosophy.
0: For Brettler, biblical myth is less instruction, perhaps even less narrative, than it is like a piece of music.
3: But part of what happens in a symphony is, you do not have a single melody. Not all of the instruments are playing exactly the same notes. You have melodies, you have harmonies. Depending on when the symphony was written, you may even have various types of dissonances. And as I read the Hebrew Bible, I am as interested in the harmonies, I am as interested in the dissonances, and I do not really want to flatten it and see it as a relatively monolithic text. One
0: aspect that makes the Tower of Babel story so complex is that to carry on with the metaphor of a piece of music, It could have been played over and over again, changing slightly each time, before finally being written down in the simple, cryptic nine verses we know today. One theme becomes the dominant melody, while other harmonies float underneath, some more perceptible than others. Then maybe one of those hidden harmonic shapes begins to emerge as stronger and becomes the dominant motif moving forward. And maybe something that seemed to run counter to the entire rhythm and mood of the symphony, a radical counterpoint comes into play. simmering under the surface, threatening to undermine the whole structure. Like the removal of a single load-bearing brick, causing the whole tower to crumble. And maybe that radical dissonance is a subtle but powerful sense that the Hebrews were not just critical or envious or dismissive of the builders of Babel, but that they identified with them. But one way to help interpretation is to first figure out what it's not. And what it's not, it turns out, is what so many generations thought it was.
3: I think as many people retell the story without looking at it, in their retelling, and this is true in some later Jewish and Christian retellings as well as contemporary retellings of the story. Uh, God kills the people who are involved in the building of the the Tower of Babel, or part of the story is that they kill each other. When you look at that story, that doesn't happen at all. They are, according to verse 8, simply scattered over the face of all the earth. And that causes them to stop building the city. The fact that verse 8 does not note that their punishment was that they were killed for divine disobedience or killed for a severe sin really does suggest that the author is somewhat sympathetic, or perhaps even more than somewhat sympathetic, toward what the people are doing and coming together to build the city and tower. You think of various colonial powers who have conquered other nations. There certainly is resentment by the other peoples of the great colonial powers, but sometimes there's also tremendous admiration for the culture and empire that these conquering powers belong to.
0: So when you strip back the decades and centuries of interpretation that paint a jealous and brutal god smiting the people for disobedience, you might find, at its core, a sentiment impossible for any human culture to escape. The reason why anyone builds anything, perhaps.
2: So I looked back then, as others, I'm not the first one to have seen this and I'm relying heavily on other scholars, looked back at the preceding material and also closely to the words of the builders themselves. And, and they, they express, I think, something that, that tonally comes across, at least in part, as fearful. Um, let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth or lest, lest we be scattered.
0: The fear of being scattered as the Hebrews were scattered from their homeland. Do you think maybe that fear and pride is kind of a desire to be immortalized or even just a basic fear of death and disappearing?
2: I think the the problem of human sin in the opening chapters of Genesis 1 through 11 is very much a kind of overstepping creaturely bounds. So we know that in the uh, opening chapters with the uh, garden story and Adam and Eve and all this business, right? There the issue seems to be that they want to be like God. And not only do they want to be like God or or succumb to that that temptation, uh, God says in chapter 3, they actually have become like one of us, God says, with that us apparently referring to uh, God and the heavenly entourage. And there's three places in this material where God speaks and uses a first-person common pronoun, we. The first one is in chapter one, where God actually makes the humans. Let us make humans in our image, in our likeness. Then chapter three, where the, where the, the humans seem to have transgressed somehow. Uh, and then there's this one in 11, where God says, let us go down and mix up their language. Uh, this is a. These are three places uh, where that language is used and in each case, um, there's a, there's a kind of a confusion or, or, or distinction drawn or transgressed of the creaturely and human boundary. And so that lends a lot of support to your your point that you just raised that perhaps this is kind of a, a, a hero project as it were, right? Something that humans do that will immortalize themselves even if they can't immor- be immortal any longer.
0: Through a religious lens, it's easy to see how the ambition to be immortal or the desire to come together as one people might seem like a threat to the spiritual order of the world. But to us today, it just seems a little like collective survival. Human beings wanted to create something that would last beyond just bare existence. And with all their power, Gwendolyn says that even the Babylonians had a strong sense that everything could come crashing down. It's interesting to go back to the Tower of Babel story. It's often looked at as being an example of hubris, even the classic example of hubris in a way. But the way you depict Babylonian myth there's a little bit of realism there, and you mentioned that Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, you said, signaled a desire for everlasting monumentality, but you also say that this desire for physical permanence may betray doubts about the sustainability of it all. What do you mean by that? <laughs>
1: well, um, the efforts which Nebuchadnezzar undertook in and he keeps stressing that in record time um, to, for instance, uh, ward off the danger of the river Euphrates, which ran right through the city. It bisected it. And so he built this thing which the German archaeologists call forework, which is an enormous edifice in order to strengthen a bit that bit of the city where the river makes a bend. The rivers were as unpredictable as the gods. So you could build and harness all the resources, the latest technology to try and ward off just the, just the, how the river behaved. And of course, the temple itself, uh, the Etemenanki, which was built on top of earlier cigarettes going back to the second millennium, and that... <clears throat> this effort to to show, to make a signal that this is now the mightiest empire, for a while it was, and it should be seen like that from afar, but also always the possibility of doubt, knowing that the, the gods are not predictable, and they have also seen the might of Assyria, which had been the main empire before, invincible, uh, say, like America has been after the war, uh, just tumble down. It was the Babylonians and Medes themselves later to ashes. So you knew also from fairly recent experience about the sudden shift of fortunes of the most mighty. And so that's why I thought this, um, the feverish, building activity that went on at that time, unprecedented, really. It wasn't just the city gates and the streets and the dikes, uh, or that war against the Euphrates and Eta and the palaces and so on. It went on everywhere and each of these buildings had bricks stamped proclaiming the name of the king. But there was, I think, possibly a doubt as to how long all this would last. But while we still can, we will make sure that this is not forgotten so quickly. Their fallibility is a given. There is no fall. There's no story of the fall in Mesopotamian um, mythology. Human beings are inherently not perfect and fallible. It's because when they were created, they're only partly created from divine substance. The rest is mere matter.
0: And it turns out these inherently fallible humans made of mere matter did indeed fall from power just three or four generations after their ascendancy, a fall which the prophet Daniel is said to have predicted In fact, the prophecy became so iconic that it bore its own idiom. So when a grim portent cannot be ignored, we say, the writing's on the wall. The original writing on the wall came at Belshazzar's feast. The son of the final king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire sits down to drink from the cups taken from Solomon's temple, only to see a giant hand writing on the wall unintelligible gibberish that Daniel interprets to mean that the kingdom of Babylon will be overthrown by the Persians and it was as the Babylonians had so long feared and suspected and the Persians under the Achaemenid empire of Cyrus the Great expanded until they bumped up against the European continent then an ongoing war with the Greeks led to the conquering of Babylon by Alexander the Great who saw the great Etemananke in disrepair and ruin and always intended to repair it, but died before he could. And after he died, Antiochus I of the splinter empire of the Seleucids fell in the middle of a sacrifice on Etemananke and ordered the tower destroyed. And with that, the prophecy was complete. Today, we may be less tempted to attribute that to divine intervention and more to basic nature, biology even. We grow as one until we can't sustain ourselves anymore, then we scatter, divide, regenerate. Do you think the Tower of Babel story, given how open to interpretation it is, Are we doomed to project our own viewpoints onto it? I mean, you could say that about a lot of biblical stories, but I find this one in particular, it's a kind of Rorschach test.
3: This brilliant quote that I read and can no longer find said, but if you read a text with an empty head, it usually shows in the interpretation that you offer for that particular text because it will be a rather empty Interpretation. I think it is inevitable that we bring part of ourselves, each and every one of us, in each of our differences, to the biblical text or in any text as we interpret it. And the best that we could do as interpreters, and this is certainly what I try to do when I read a biblical text, is to be aware of the biases that we each have and to try to control for those biases. But I do not believe that I can read the biblical text in a perfect scholarly, unbiased fashion. I think that that's just a pipe dream.
0: And a part of bringing ourselves to the text involves looking at it through our 21st century lens. After all, we're not hovering objectively above some historical chess game. We're living in the middle of some of the most profound displacement in memory.
1: This being scattered was something that happened to a lot of people. We are seeing it again now, that people are being scattered all over the earth, and this creates a sense of fear, both from those who suddenly find themselves living with people they consider strangers, whose Um, language they don't understand, and finding yourself somewhere else, in some more or less involuntary exile. So being scattered is, is an old human fear.
0: During the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, the Americans nearly destroyed the ancient remains of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, including the base of a structure just a few feet high, all that was left of the Intaminanki. But in the process, they discovered that decades earlier, Saddam Hussein himself had done great damage to these same relics. Ironically, not out of cavalier neglect in this case, but in a vain attempt to glorify the old empire and by extension his own rule. See, his ham fisted reconstruction of the Temple of Nebuchadnezzar included bricks etched with the words, This was built by Saddam, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. Not exactly the most historically accurate act of preservation. This, too, is a manifestation of the fear of scattering, and perhaps speaks to the question of whether the Hebrew writers might have been sympathizing with or condemning the builders of Babel. Fear of death is human, but the corrupting power of fear is itself fear-inducing. For those in power, It is a fear of losing one's grip on those binding forces that hold together a nation, an empire, a religion, a set of values, a concept, or an abstract idea. And pinning one's own political affiliation on an imagined legacy, as Saddam Hussein did. That's something we should be very familiar with in 2018. This isn't just about Donald Trump and make america great again this is a worldwide phenomenon in the midst of a battle for diminishing resources and opportunities there are many who perceive a growing pluralism to be a profound existential threat and this fear lest we be scattered is so often accompanied by some of our most calloused even vicious impulses and ironically it is often the very people who truly are being scattered that bear the worst of it
2: I saved you I saved you cried that woman and you've bit me heavens why you know your bite is poisonous and now I'm going to die oh shut up silly woman said the reptile with a grin you knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in.
0: This is what
2: is going on in our country with our boys. She is reportedly one of more than 2,300 children now separated from their parents. Some of these families fleeing violence and economic hardship in their native countries.
0: He had seen children uh, shackled and beaten and tased while he was detained there children in detention facilities being injected with drugs and being
3: forced to take it. strong border we're going to have a wall it's going to be a powerful wall and mexico
0: is going to pay for it talk so fair well samson said delila cut these are the towers of the 21st century and it seems to me it's not a question of if they topple but when and at what cost if i have my way If I had my way, if I had my way, oh Lord, I might burn this old building down. This This is Polarities, a podcast about borders, real and imagined. Polarities is written and produced by myself, Joel Elliott, the episode was mixed and edited by Daffod Hughes, with music composed by Daffod Hughes and Christine Boushey. The theme music is written and performed by Joyful Joyful, and this episode's closing music was performed by Michael C. Duguay. Special thanks to Douglas Naylor. You can find me on Twitter, at Polarity's Pod, and Facebook, at Polarity's Podcast. If you like this podcast, feel free to leave a review, and if you really like it, we would sincerely appreciate a donation on Patreon to keep this show going see the show notes. Thanks so much for listening.